Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kauli. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kauli, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kauli. Well, welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of having uh, Mr. David Thompson with Thompson Investing. David, welcome to the show. Sakar, thanks for having me. Appreciate sure, it. Sure. A little bit about David. Uh, David has done thousands of uh, uh, units so far. He has invested in many multifamily uh, self-storages and mobile home parks. Uh, last year alone, in 2018, uh, David and his company did, um, I think, 13 deals, which is uh, quite incredible. Uh, I mean, you know, <laughs> just about 2,000 apartments. Um, I had the pleasure uh, of working with David, uh, in fact, on a couple of those deals. Uh, so without further ado, uh, welcome to Premium Cashflow Podcast, David. And uh, why don't you maybe uh, share with us a uh, little bit about yourself, David, how you got started and uh, where you're at today with Thompson Investing. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thanks for having me on your show. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, you know, sharing some ideas with your listeners and, and seeing if we can help some folks along the way. But you know, I started really in the syndication business um, a little over three years ago. I was in corporate America for about 20 years, a high tech specifically, and uh, uh, started getting into uh, some real estate exposure here in Austin, Texas, locally through some single family uh, rental properties. I think a lot of people kind of start there. And then sure. after a while, they realize, wow, I mean, after a few houses, uh, kind of fun at first, you know, but uh, to try to think about scaling the business, I, I thought, well, I'd have to have a W-2 job for quite a long time uh, to keep saving for those down payments. And um, I ran into somebody who was doing syndication and, and they were a pretty young, per, pretty much a young person. <laughs> I was like, well, and they're getting ready to take down like a 300 unit apartment in Dallas, Texas. And I was like, you know, how, you know, how does that work? Right? Yeah, how does that work? You know, I'm sitting <laughs> trying to save money for a house and you're trying to take down a 300 unit apartment. So uh, introducing to me what the power of syndication which is simply pooling investor capital and enabling investors who are busy people, but like real estate to participate uh, and commercial uh, real estate endeavors. Um, we focus primarily on apartments and uh, as you mentioned, self-storage and, and branched out to manufactured home parks. But let's just maybe talk about apartments because that's where most of our investors today um, have a lot of familiarity with. Um, and so I started working with them and I had left corporate America. I decided this is the holy grail of investing. I thought, sure. wow, uh, we have professional managers. I don't have to worry about messing around with the property. Uh, you know, I get my weekends back. And then, uh, you know, I found out that, uh, hey, they're, they're, they actually cash flow very well. They were sure, cash flow better. And we're talking about cash flows and preferred returns. We don't get technical here, but, you know, kind of 8% range. Um, and on my homes in Austin, I was getting maybe 4 to 5%. And if I had a turnover that year, there goes the cash flow. There was not going to be cash flow. And uh, certainly you're getting appreciation and, and, and other things around the local properties, but 
it just wasn't where I wanted to be. I wanted to leave my corporate job. I wanted to, you know, have some cash flow that I could count on and some steady properties. So um, I started, I asked the person that introduced me to it, if I could help him. Uh, I, they had a couple partners and they were in Dallas and they were, their, their program was around acquiring value at apartments. Basically, apartments between 1980, 2005 that needed a facelift, you know? Sure, and sure. it's a car, it's kind of like, I would talk to investors, it's kind of like this, keeping the story very simple. Um, everybody has watched these flip the house shows, right? Sure. <laughs> uh, and, and that's what we're kind of doing with the apartment, but there's 300 units and there's 300 families living there. You're not going to disrupt their lifestyles by bringing drills and uh, jackhammers into the house, you know, in the apartment. We wait till uh, a renter's lease expires and then we'll go sure. ahead and so so in any given month where maybe maybe 10 or 15 of these units were we're fixing up and so it takes about two years absolutely that, right it's, um, it's a bit and, of an extended flip or um, yeah, uh, sort of yeah, a slow motion flip. project you're <laughs> yeah. slowly trying to you know chip away at it and yeah, absolutely you know, increase the valuation of the entire asset yeah right yeah and so what we're you know basically that's how i started in. i started uh, helping them as a team member Sure. And, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of experience finding deals. I, that wasn't my interest or, you know, deep analyzing deals, looking at spreadsheets all day. I found I liked talking to investors and educating them on these opportunities. So I became a part of the team focused more on educating and uh, taking care of investors, raising capital, uh, educating them on the business and, and then exposing them to these great opportunities. But the investors saw right away the value of these opportunities. Um, they, they felt that uh, the way it was, I explained it to them is, you know, fairly low risk investments. If you have operators that are in the right markets, you know, strong jobs and population growing like Dallas, Texas, yeah. Atlanta, these kind of markets. Um, and also uh, we are working with experienced operators that have, you know, managed these types of properties before sure. and optimize, let know how to optimize them correctly. Right. And, and that's uh, actually, that's a good point, David, that, I get this question quite frequently that uh, like where we are, like I'm in the uh, Washington, Virginia uh, area here in right. Maryland, uh, just on the suburbs of Northern Virginia. So uh, the question I get many a times is that, um, hey, what markets are you selecting? Or, you, you know, like, for example, I'm having a meeting with someone and people would say, hey, oh, really, you invest in Dallas or you have uh, deals in San Antonio or Austin, for that matter, or Atlanta. Right. I, and then, you know, I kind of explain them as to, you know, how submarkets play and, you know, why it's so important to be in the right market. Can you maybe uh, share with us a little bit more, David, as to how these deals work uh, economically, demographics, job yeah. growth, and all those sure. kind of factors that yeah. bring uh, this uh, environment. Yeah, Sakar, and you touch on a couple of different things. So uh, keep me focused and honest. I don't stray too far from from answering this. But let's start with markets, and and uh, and you could you could talk to a sophisticated investor, and they, they may look at five or ten data points. But for the typical investor, I think everybody gets supply and demand, right? Sure. If I'm, I don't want to be someplace maybe. Um, in an area that's not growing very much, right? Because think about this, if I have a population growth and job growth, those are where my renters are gonna have jobs to pay the rent, sure. and I'm gonna have upward pressure on uh, supply. So in Dallas, Texas, <clears throat> it's a premier growth of, uh, city and state of Texas, and why is that? Because of several factors. Um, you have companies moving in from more expensive west coast, east coast, looking for 
high quality places to live, lower cost for their employees and that kind of thing. And so sure. if they have wage raises they have to pay, they can still get high quality people in these locations. And so they're moving a lot of their operations, sometimes headquarters to these large areas. These cities take advantage of a great infrastructure. You know, they have great airports, right. uh, tran road transportation systems, that kind of thing. Um, and the other thing that's really a new, not kind of a fairly new trend that we're seeing a lot in those types of cities like Dallas and Atlanta are hub cities for what we call the amortization of things, right? So it's not just Amazon. We're talking about all these companies out there that realize that brick and mortar is very expensive. So we want to have more warehouses and, and you know, last mile, get, get to the consumer really quickly, more efficiently, maybe not have so many stores but we're able to deliver products to you very quickly. And that's, that's where the transportation systems and geographically where they are. So we look for a very simple level. We look for job growth and population growth that's growing faster than the national average. That would be a great place to start. Number two, I would say is diversity of industry. You know, Dallas and Atlanta have lots of different industries. So I'm not gonna be like hurt if one industry goes down uh, do some kind of recession like oil or something like that that takes a recession down. Houston many years ago was very dependent on oil and even right. somewhat when we, you know, four years ago when it fell, it had, it got a lot of uh, not only the direct jobs in oil, but all the indirect jobs that support the oil business. Right. So renters, <laughs> right? So um, that's what we like. We like those strong markets. Um, you could talk about every market, every city might have sub markets. Dallas for instance has 28 sub markets. We would then look for those 20, the ones with the highest rent growth. Something's happening there. If you look at apartments, it's driving rent growth in that particular submarket. So we're looking to acquire properties, maybe in the top 10% of those submarkets have the highest rent growth. Something's happening there. More companies are moving in, not a lot of supply. And so that's, that's a good place to start. Um, there's one other part of your question, because you had a couple of them there that I want to answer. Why is syndication so powerful for people? Um, right. And when I talk to investors, we don't, you know, we always look for people who are interested in passive investing, but I do run into a lot of investors that like to have a little bit of active stuff going on. They may have a rental property or two that them and their, their spouse, they, they, they work and that's fine. And they feel like they have some control, but that's great to me in your local area. Like, so you're in right. Maryland, they got a couple of those things going on, but those but really, I just told you about Dallas, Atlanta. There's more dynamic markets out there. Oh, absolutely. So you've got a busy job. You know, you got a family. Uh, you don't have a lot of time. The syndicate is totally focused on this particular market. And they've done a lot of deals in that market. They know who the players are. They, have, they get the broker relationships going. The brokers steer them to the right deals. Um, and this whole machine's going on. I want to be part of that. These guys are experts. They're, inv you're, yes. they're investing with you. They're going to do what's best to optimize the value. So in a nutshell, uh, Sakar, you get geographic diversification is, is significant. You can really diversify your portfolio geographically through a syndication much easier than trying to manage this on your own, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, also one of the things, David, I always highlight uh, to our investors is that these high growth markets give you that appreciation. So like, for example, you know, you could be looking at a pro forma and you may have a project plan that calls for like maybe five to seven years of uh, the whole plan for the asset, right? So as years go by, well, you know, the operator is renovating the apartments 
the uh, net operating income, the NOI is increasing. Right. And come year three, year five, as you like value and see the income coming in, the yeah. resultant value of the bill, uh, the whole asset is so big that, uh, I mean, you just cannot, uh, you know, deny that, hey, the market has appreciated yeah. and yeah. the whole asset has gone up. And that's where the beauty of this comes in is that yeah. on one side you have cash flow. But, you know, as years go by, it's, it's almost like I like to call it that you have a strong wind behind, uh, behind you. And that's just, you know, uh, increasing your possibilities, you know. Yeah, absolutely. You said something there that, that, that jogged, jogged the memory point. I want to make sure that we get across to investors. And you could be at different levels of sophistication here. But one of the most powerful, exponentially powerful idea that when I started looking, moving from uh, investing in single family properties, and even small multis up to about four units, like duplexes and fourplexes, the, the valuation method is based right. on comparison. Right. I have a three by two bedroom home. My neighbor across the street sold a very similar vintage, three by two, same square footage, looked like my house six months ago. The price of my house is probably gonna be pretty much the same when I sure, sell it. Sure, sure. I can't go in there and put you know, gold linings all over my house and, you, you know, go ahead and upgrade it to the most extreme. I'm probably out, you know, not going to do well with that. I'm going to overspend sure. and not get the price. People aren't going to pay for that, right? Absolutely. <laughs> but in apartments, what's really cool, we have that same kind of concept, but even more powerful. So anytime you get above five units or more, mm -hmm. it's based on, as you mentioned, income. So if I buy um, an apartment, we look for like 1980s to 2005 to do these facelifts. If I go in there and I say, okay, if I redo the carpets, you know, interior renovations, redo the kitchens and baths, just like people would do on these flipping shows, and I do that over two years, I'm able to command a higher rent. Sure. Higher rent's going to drive a higher income, right? And I can have the same apartment across the street, and it would be differently valued because, as you mentioned, the valuation is driven by in commercial space how much income the property produces. Right, right. right. And it's exponential. We won't go into the equation right now, but it's exponential. I mean, I, I'll give you one example, one sure. small example. Mm -hmm. uh, we purchased um, an apartment. It was my first deal in Dallas, Texas, the Carrollton Oaks. 320 mm -hmm. units, never forget this. We purchased the home sometime in the 1980s the builders decided that Texas wasn't that hot. I don't know, it must've been an off year when they built this apartment, it was cooler that summer. I don't know, but there's not one covered parking. We're there oh in May, <laughs> it's 100 degrees already, and cars are just melting in the parking lot. And uh, so the, uh, the operator I was working with said, you know, it would be nice to have covered parking here. We would probably charge, you know, 25 bucks a month. Premium, uh, yep. <laughs> we could probably have that asset done and paid with, and the, the project paid for in a year and a half. But here was the, the interesting thing. I'll do the math for you. It was just really cool. That one little idea, uh, we did a, the property manager did a survey and 200 of the 320 said, we'll pay 25 bucks a month. So we only oh. built about 200 of them. We didn't want to build 300 and not sit there. So we built about 200 of them. Um, so at $25 times 200, it was $5,000 extra revenue a month, a month right yeah, absolutely <laughs> in a year that was sixty thousand dollars and you say well dave why well, maybe did you increase the value of the property sixty thousand no no now, i'm not going to go deep into this but the, the, the equation is very simple the concept may be a little bit new to people but sixty thousand divided by the cap rate at that time was 
uh, I want to say it was like a six or something, right? So mm -hmm. if you divide the six percent, if you divide divide sixty thousand dollars by six percent, it equals one million dollars in fair market value. We've added to the property one million dollars in fair market value just by, by that little change. Thing. <laughs> so if you're owning these investments with us, you're like, wow, Dave, I want to be. How do I be part of that? That's exponential. <laughs> You know, and sure, sure. Is creating the value. That's what I love about it. Right, it's right. not a buy and hold strategy. It's not buy the asset, do nothing to it, just to operate it simply. Um, because you know, look where we are in the market. It's 2019, right? Sure. 2012, you could have, you could have thrown a dart at any apartment and made a ton of money because rising by the, the, the rising tides lifted all boats. Doesn't matter if you're good or not. Sure. You've sure. been fortunate. Now you have to be savvy, and now you have to look for specific properties you can do that to. But you can still create value, but not a buy and hold is kind of risky, right? Buy and hold is like, hey, we could have a recession in six months, a year, two years, and I bought it at the top. Mm -hmm. But if we buy a property we can add value to, we're creating our own value so the ball's in our court. And I Absolutely. think as an owner and a, a partner in these deals, that's what I get most excited to share with investors is that we don't have to really rely totally on the economy driving our price up of real estate like we do with our single family home. Sure. Um, we want a good market, yes, um, but we don't have to have a great market to create value. Does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. And also, David, speaking of, uh, you know, a lot of time investors are saying, hey, what my returns is going to be? They are not familiar with sure. the concept of preferred returns. Sure. So if you could, you know, maybe elaborate how we, uh, you know, sort of insulate the investors and make sure that investors in interests are always in front and the operators align their interests so that uh, the investors that uh, are partnering with them are always profitable. So could you maybe uh, talk about the general partnership, limited partnership structure and how the returns work in these deals? Yeah, I, I was, I'll, I'll do that. Let's start with your first maybe question was kind of expected returns. And sure. you guys got to be careful about, because these are forecasts that are expected. It's what we're seeing right now in 2019. But sure. if listen to this in 2022, the expectations may be different. But Oh, absolutely. <laughs> for, for right now, we're, we're seeing in the marketplace most of our multifamily deals are penciling out to the seven, eight, eight percent type yield, cash on cash yield. So if you invest, let's just make it simple, hundred thousand dollars, the investors should be looking to to, uh, to to get around a seven or eight thousand in their pocket, right? Sure. Um, not guaranteed. It's kind of our target or our pro forma, what we expect to pencil out to. Um, we also expect that hundred thousand dollar investment to grow over a five year, maybe a seven year period, a double. Mm -hmm. uh, a double to us, we call multiple two X. We'd like to see the hundred thousand grow to 200,000. And part of that's going to be distributions. I'm going to send to you monthly or quarterly from the operations. We're going to have mm -hmm. success in the operations as we re as we renovate these properties, charge higher rents. We're going to be able to throw more cash out to the investor, but we typically just say, Hey, for five years, we're conservative for about a five year hold. We're going to try to target this 8% to you every year for five years. Right. So about $40,000 of your 100,000 is going to come from what's called a, you know, preferred return or this cash flow, right? About 60% where pro forma is based on a sale in five years. So it's kind of, think about this kind of total return concept. You're getting, we're actually lowering your risk because it's not like a stock. You don't put $100,000 here and hope in five years you get a double. We're saying, listen, it's a hard asset. It's already producing cash. We're trying to make it produce more efficient cash, higher level cash. Sure. Um, and so we have a general idea that we can hit these numbers, but most of your, at least half of your money is going to be coming, 40% of your money is coming back from just 
regular operations. And that's what people love. That's the passive cash flow that we're, <laughs> that we're providing, right? Um, now, you asked me about the structure. Uh, and I mentioned a term called preferred return. Most of, uh, so I'm, I work with about three multifamily providers in, in, in different niches. It's typically across different niches I see this formula. An 8% preferred return, after that, a 70-30 split. The limited partner, general partner. What does that mean? So, Carr, you're an investor. You're investing in our general partnership. I say to you, listen, the expectation is you give us $100,000, we're going to target an 8% preferred return, which means any dollar that we come out with from operations or even a sale down the road or even a refinance, anything that happens, we're distributing cash to you. The first 8%, 100% of the first 8% is going to go to you, the investor, limited yeah. partner, before the general partner gets paid. Okay. Mm -hmm. After that, once we, once we go above 8%, then a typical split I see is 70% to the limited partner for every dollar over that 30% to the general partner. That's the, the most simplest formula. Simplest. You've got more com complicated strategies. And then um, we can talk quickly about the general partnership, how they get compensated, if you like, just real quickly. Sure, sure. Why don't we get, go in there? Because people need to understand that general partner is not going to wait five years in a sale to get you know, their 30% fees. Um, there are a couple general fees. Um, now, that's all baked in. So when we show you these pro formas and what the investor could see, uh, those net, those fees are taken into account. So what we're showing right. you is net fees, right? Right. Um, but two things: when you get um, when you look at these, we call it a private placement. Not to get too detailed, but if you <laughs> like an investment, you see the overview of it, you explain to you well, and you want to get into it. Eventually, you're going to have to look at this 100-page legal document called a PPM. We call it in the industry. Um, this will all be spelled out: the partnership agreement, how it all works, you know, the risks in the in the project, uh, these types of things, the offering, and all that. Uh, and a subscription agreement you sign. But, you know, essentially this PPM you end up signing is, is important for you to kind of get into the deal. But we outline all this structure. In the PPM, we outline the fees. We outline the fact that there's yeah. probably two main fees I see mostly, and the industry standard is probably around 2% on both of them. There's a 2% acquisition fee, and that's paid at closing one time based on the purchase price of the asset. And that goes to the uh, the uh, general partner, the sponsor, uh, right. and it really much. I say it pays uh, the folks that work on the team to get the deal done, right? right. The people who review, review 50 properties to find that one, the operational team that's getting ready to take over that group, and also or that project, and also the capital raise folks that help bring the investors to the deal. Sure. It's sure. one time done. Then there's one other fee that we see a lot. It's called asset management fee. Right. It's, really, it's typically around 2% as well, 1% to 3% is the range. Uh, basically, you're, you're, the operator is going to want to get paid for doing all of this work, executing the business plan right. uh, mm -hmm. on the property. So that's called asset management fee. It's usually taken off you know, quarterly off of the revenue generated. Right. But I always like to tell investors, listen, you want the general partner healthy, but if you look at how it's structured, 70 80% of their profit or their income in this whole program or their payout in this whole program is tied to a capital event down the road, a successful operation of the property, a successful sale and exit. So exactly. it's important for when investors are looking at deals, they want to make sure it's not structured so where the GP gets paid up front <laughs> and then the investor, hey, whatever it gets in the back. So I like yeah. to look for preferred returns. Mm -hmm. Not all deals have them, but it kind of, it's not a guarantee, but it kind of gives you the sense that, hey, you're going to get most of this stuff 
as an investor. Right, right. right. And also, David, speaking about, you know, sort of conservative underwriting and also the sensitivity analysis that comes along with these deals, uh, can you maybe share like how uh, conservatively underwritten these deals are and upfront when they do the sensitivity analysis, which is basically in short saying that, hey, these are the various scenarios that we are mimicking so that, hey, if the interest rate goes up or if the uh, occupancy of the uh, place, uh, you know, dips a little bit or any other uh, event happens, how all that is modeled in ahead of time. Can you maybe share uh, a few words about, uh, you know, how yeah. all that uh, plays into this? That's really important. I think that's why we, when you're working with experienced operators, you want to be working right. with, you know, on my side of the equation, I, mean, I want to be working with experienced operator partners that are conservative in underwriting. What sure. conservative, some examples of that would be, <clears throat> you know, if, if in that submarket we're talking about in Dallas, if, if the experts, the third party experts out there, the, the real estate uh, data firms that give you uh, all these forecasts, mm-hmm. they actually will say that specific submarket is expected to grow over the next two, three years at 5%. Correct. Okay. Now, when we model out, we don't want to model out to 5% or 6% or 7%. That would be too aggressive. Correct. The conservative mm-hmm. would be maybe modeling out to 3 or 4%, maybe 3% right. year one, maybe 4%. We always want to be modeling out lower than the expectation. Correct. Um, another great example would be um, – when we do the modeling to determine what kind of new rent growth we can get if we renovate these apartments, right? Sure. Um, mm-hmm. How do we determine if we're going to, you know, if we want to raise those rents, you know, we see, hey, our pro forma says we need to raise them $150. Well, that's fine and dandy. But if everybody else around you has done that and they're only getting $125, we don't want to put $150. That doesn't make any sense. Correct. So typically we'll see, we'll, we'll go out there and we'll look at the competitors that we think, hey, if we did this and this, we have a, a like kind property only, you know, one mile down the road that's done it already fully renovated and they're getting $200 more. Okay. Why don't we budget? Why don't we form former out to 150? That's what you want to be looking for. You want to look at these key drivers, primarily around the rents you're going to charge occupancy, especially in the first year. You know, these uh, keep in mind, it sounds kind of easy. Hey, we're going to go in there and renovate and just get, magically get all these rents. Well, there's a lot of hard work involved. I have to oh, tell you, no question about it. getting paid for a reason. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. Oftentimes when you're going into these properties, you don't know what the previous owner and that property management team was allowing. They, they, they probably had residents in there, tenants in there that may have missed a couple payments, but they don't want to lose them. They want to keep occupancy high before they sell it. So you've got sure. all this drag happening when you take over a property. You certainly audit stuff, but there's a lot of ways to hide things, right? So you take over oh, a property yeah. and you realize, hey, I, there's 10 or 15% of the population here I have to evict potentially. Sure. Um, uh, or, you know, we come in with, you have to shore up their finances. So we can see, and we always see a dip in occupancy. So mm-hmm. the good news for investors is um, we typically buy properties that are proven, you know, low to mid 90% occupancy we're not this is an occupancy play we're not trying to create jobs and drive up demand it's already there the properties that we're buying are already proven properties that lowers your risk right correct but but we always want to pre-wire investors to say hey when we start sending you monthly reports and quarterly reports especially maybe that first six months or so um be be okay with the fact that our occupancy may drop to mid 80s okay be okay with that don't freak out you know it's going to come back if we're going to you know we're going to basically reposition that's reposition the property we're going to rebrand it all these things that we're doing so that's really important to us we want to make sure that people understand that 
our pro forma should show in year one, maybe, maybe we're going to show 90% on average instead of 95. Mm -hmm. We're going to be on average, we go 85 to 95, maybe over that year or 92, but on average, we're going to show less than what the T12 or what the, what, what the, what the previous owner said it was going to be or the market says it was going to be. We're going to show in that first year or two, maybe a little bit lower occupancy. That's a conservative that's a conservative thing you want to be looking for. Does that Absolutely. make sense? So occupancy, rent rates, those things would be conservative. Um, I think that was your first question. Can you remind me of your second question? Right. More around, the other was more around sensitivity analysis. Yes, perfect, perfect. Of, uh, yeah. so, so that plays right into the deals that we have. Um, you want to work with an operator who shows you what's called, as Sakar mentioned, sensitivity analysis. Correct. <laughs> sounds kind of scary. Sounds kind of woo. You know, uh, hey, any 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 person who's even a layman can be taught what this means. Okay, we're going to show you the projected rents and intersection of projected rents and occupancy when it's stabilized in this project. And we're going to say, oh, that's why you get eight percent. That's how you get eight sure. <laughs> percent. But if rents, if we have a recession, a severe recession like we did maybe in two thousand nine, we want to stress test this thing and say, listen, if rents were ten percent off what we projected. That's a big jump down, right? Um, sure. <laughs> and if occupancy went down to like, I think most of the time we can go all the way down to 81% uh, on our charts, we're still making two or 3%. We're still able to pay our mortgage, which is the key. And uh, we know that in 2009, Dallas, Texas, the worst occupancy got uh, was 85%. So we wanna know in the markets, we, we wanna get data and go back to the worst case scenario, which mm -hmm. 2009 was pretty bad, right? We've oh yeah. A lot of, yeah. And we wanna say, how would this apartment held hold up? And uh, and so that's one part. The other one we do interest rates. Uh, we do interest rate sensitivity if we have a variable rate loan, and we do sensitivity around the cap rate, which is part of that equation NOI over cap rate fair market value. The cap rate can change, and we want to make sure that we're conservative with that cap rate. So if we bought an apartment at five cap, we want to make sure we're at least at five point five, maybe six percent on uh, maybe six percent on uh, on the exit cap, so that. Mm -hmm. If the cap rate grows, we're going to negatively affect the price. And we want to show that to our investor. What would that do to your return? So is this acceptable if it went to 6%? Hey, I'm still making a low 11% return. I know you were targeting 15, 18, but hey, I'm still beating what my money was in the bank and it was still a good opportunity, right? Sure. That's exactly sure. what we're talking about, yeah. And also, David, if you can maybe briefly touch upon how are the tax benefits for the investors um, as part of this? Like, are they getting K-1s? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. The beauty of real estate, not only it's stable, it's, it's gone the test of time with the value-add properties. They, they do really, we didn't talk about risk, but we can maybe talk about that. They've held up really well versus a single-family home from a risk standpoint. But sure. uh, as far as taxes, the, 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 you get all of the things. If you have a real rental property, you get to write off the property taxes, the uh, interest on the loan, and uh, depreciation. And with apartments, we do accelerated depreciation, typically over seven years versus sure. 25. So there's a lot of write-offs. So let, let's go back to that $100,000 investment example. Mm -hmm. $8,000 preferred return. You're expecting you got $8,000 in your pocket that year. The partners need to give you a K-1 statement in March of the following year to, for your tax preparations. It says, hey, Sakar, you made $8,000. Congratulations. But, oh, by the way, you actually had a loss. So we expect you to have a paper loss most of the years, if not every year, holding it because of all these deductions. Right. So that's the beauty of real estate. Now, there's some recapture of that depreciation and sale, but we won't get technical here. Just know that you're not going to experience a big tax hit with that $8,000. Sure. Mm -hmm. It's a passive loss, and you can use that against your passive income in your portfolio. The second thing you want to know is at sale, what happens? Well, it's a long-term capital gain if you sell and you pay the taxes, but 
with some of the operators that we've had, we've been able to do a 1031 exchange. Mm -hmm. And we take your original investment, plus your profit, and roll it into the next investment. Then you defer that long-term tax. And sure. now you're in, you keep going along that way. Um, and the last thing that we see, after two years, if we don't sell the property right away, um, we've created this income. We'll often go back to the bank and said, listen, if we don't have a, a buyer right away, let's go ahead and refinance the property. And that pulls out that equity, kind of like a little ATM machine, pulls out mm -hmm. that equity so we can maybe pull out 25%, 30%, I've seen up to 40%, 50% of your 100000 we pull it back to you and give you a check. So car, hey, we had one apartment in Dallas, a 40%, an investor had a $100,000 investment, we gave him a check back for $40,000, okay? So that was the refinance equity back to you. No tax consequence. The IRS determines that as returning original equity, another beautiful thing. Absolutely. And now we're still in the investment, still paying you, you know, your distributions uh, until we find a, a, a buyer of that property. So from a tax perspective, that's why people love these investments too. It's very tax efficient. Sure. And also, uh, David, I know a lot of like accredited investors, sometimes their capital is, let's say, tied up into certain business or things like that. They are sold on the concept that, hey, this is really solid. Sometimes the timing is just not right. right. So I always explain them that, hey, your IRA could be a resource that is typically untapped and uh, all these, you know, 401ks and things like that are always tied to some mutual funds or stock market. Right. And they are always struggling that, hey, I have this big problem where my, uh, the biggest pile of my investments are not getting, uh, you know, the enough returns. Sure. So I explained them that, hey, there is a way you can open a self-directed IRA and, you know, kind of control this investment, how it works, where you can invest. Mm -hmm. And, and, and right. you and I, we both know that this is done in a very big way. Can you maybe chat about that? Hey, uh, you know, how uh, IRA investments have done and, sure. uh, you know, how they can uh, come about yeah. Invest in, uh, in such right. A I think it's a powerful way. We have a lot of money tied up in IRAs in this nation, and, and the only people that they know about is you know the only thing they know about is stocks, bonds, and stuff. So, uh, sure. what you want to do is you can take part of your traditional IRA, or you know, whatever, however much you want to allocate to real estate or some other opportunities, um, and open up a self-directed IRA. And uh, sure. there's companies out there that just specialize in that. We won't go into a lot of detail, but they're out there. They're nationwide. They're reputable. Absolutely. Um, and so you can move uh, that. It probably takes a week or you know, week to two weeks to move it. But then you're in control of the investments at that point. You're still working with a custodian. But uh, in, in that scenario, what's nice about that, it now opens up to a lot more different choices. Your traditional sure. IRA, you can pretty much only do stocks, bonds, and you know, those kind of things. So here now you can invest in real estate. You can even invest in businesses. You can invest in a lot of different things. So sure. uh, people need to realize that that's an avenue open to them. Um, and so, yes, you can invest in our real estate. We see it done all the time. Um, one thing I do want to caveat, though, that you need to be aware of, I'm not a tax expert, but I'm aware of this because my CPS told me about it, <laughs> mm -hmm. is uh, uh, when you buy, if you bought all cash, this is a, a real estate, this is not a problem. But if you, have, you, you buy leveraged real estate, you are subject to what's called unrealized business income tax. It's called a yeah. UBIT tax. So UBIT, just have that yeah. discussion mm -hmm. with your with your uh, tax advisor about what that might impact you on these types of investments. It's essentially basically the IRS doesn't want you to take advantage of the leverage portion of the asset and, and the profit that that, uh, that, 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 that generates. Um, and right. so there's some tax you have to pay on that. But um, 
I've looked at this from a standpoint of the types of investments that we offer. And oftentimes it still makes sense to go ahead and use your IRA, right? So, you still want to diversify your portfolio, still the types of returns that we're showing people, even with the tax, it still may make sense to you. So I don't discourage people just because of the tax, just do the right. your analysis and homework and understand it. But it's a huge opportunity for people. And I know the solo one 401k, if you have your own business, a solo one 401k, uh, you're not subject to that UBIT tax. You have a usually you put more money in a solo 401k. So if you're an entrepreneur out there, to go explore a solo one 401k and the opportunity that you can buy real estate with those because those UBIT taxes aren't impacting in those types of scenarios. Gotcha. Thank you for that explanation, David. Yeah. And I know, uh, David, your company, Thompson Investing, invests into self-storage facilities and also mobile home parks. And these are another, that's another asset class where I think that kind of, I like to say that it always kind of flies under the radar. Like for example, uh, someone rents a self-storage facility. I mean, you're paying 60, 70, 80 bucks. And I mean, nobody cares, but you know, hey, six months go by that $80 would have been like 98 or hundred. So uh, in short, what I'm saying is that such are the sound investments within self-storage or mobile home parks that a little bit of increase in their income has a big impact to that asset class. Right. And it kind of goes undetected how powerful uh, these other asset classes are. Can you maybe share, I know you have a wealth of knowledge uh, uh, having done into this. Uh, can you maybe uh, talk about like, you know, a similar goes for mobile home parks as well. So can you maybe share your experiences around these and how powerful these are? Yeah, I mean, each of them have their own kind of nuances, but at a high level, both self-storage and manufactured home parks are highly fragmented markets, meaning that they're 80% in the hands of mom and pops that I'm sure some run them very efficiently and some don't. And I think that's the opportunity to find those ones that aren't run very efficiently. Mm -hmm. They may not have the budget to keep up, renovate, keep up with the latest technologies, the climate controlled, all that kind of sure. stuff. Mm -hmm. they, they, these are legacy type storage units or uh, manufactured home parks the same way. They may have lost, the people have moved out of them. There's empty pads and those mm -hmm. types of things. So we like the fact, we like the factors uh, overall in these industries, those two industries, we like, why, why do we like both of them? Um, in self storage, people have a hard time throwing stuff away. We're in the United States. I don't know if it's right. The rest of the world is like this. We have, we love to buy things. We're, we're well marketed to, and sure. we have a hard time throwing things away. So the average person, one out of 10 people in the United States has, is running a self storage facility and paying, you know, probably 80, hundred bucks a month and they forget about it. And three years later, they said, that was kind of stupid. Maybe I, I probably, you know, uh, want to get out of that. <laughs> Meanwhile, the owner is going, this is great. I hope you forget forever. Uh, and, and, and first of all, they're also both, both uh, self-storage and manufactured home has the same thing. They're very low cost to operate. Um, right. Apartments probably operate at about a 50% expense ratio. These are probably op operating at 30, 35% expense ratio. Wow. And those mm -hmm. are ones that aren't even managed maybe so efficiently. The ones that are really managed efficiently even get lower than that. But, um, you know, so, so there's a lot, I mean, think about this. If you, if you are renting a, um, a self-storage unit, uh, basically once you clean out your stuff, the next, what I have to do for the next renter is basically sweep it out and give you an, <laughs> and do a lock, right? With an apartment, I got to repaint it. I got to do a lot more expensive in the makeover turnover. Mm -hmm. uh, plus my, uh, my uh, leases are maybe month to month. Um, you know, so, so I can, I can raise rents, uh, I see, I've seen some operators, they raise rents, um, you know, maybe 6% a, a year. They do it twice a year, every six months, 3%, every six months, 3%. It goes undetected. Why? Because again, I forgot my stuff's there. 
Mm -hmm. you're direct you're hitting my account automatically i don't even probably know it goes to 103 oh, yeah. and then Absolutely. it goes to one it was a hundred dollars it goes to 103 106 and you know after three years now it's back 115 125 is starting to get a little irritating and then and the reason i haven't moved up till that time is because i know i have to get a truck spend my weekend and cost move to another competing facility to save what five ten bucks here or there people aren't going to do it so, so that's why self-storage does really well it does <laughs> really well in downturns too it does well in downturns because Think about this. If you have a small business, it's maybe cyclical. You don't want all this investment in capital. You just maybe store it somewhere, right? right? So you rent this place for a couple of years until the economy picks back up. Or we're seeing now people who used to have files in a class A building. Class A building rent is, is astronomical, oh, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. So people go, listen, I'll start storing that stuff in storage. Mm -hmm. I don't want to go out there once a month because these self-storage facilities are now, the modern ones, are they have music playing. They're well heated. They're well lit. You want to be there. You want to hang out there. You know, it's like a coffee shop. <laughs> they got donuts. You know, the old days, you know, self storage was off the beaten path in some chain link fence area that was not safe. You know, Absolutely. we didn't feel safe. So, you know, that's the self storage industry. Manufactured homes we love because um, they're not building anymore. There's about fifty thousand of them nationwide. Uh, we have a we have a um, affordability issue here in the United States. Houses are going up. Rents are going up on apartments. There's not many options for people, right? And uh, right. manufactured home parks are still very affordable for people. They own their own unit. We own the pads. Um, what's the value add strategy there? We go in and we, we, you know, we pave all the roads, repaint the fences, put the landscaping in, uh, take out the old shuffleboard courts and put pickle courts. It's a new thing, you know. Mm -hmm. um, we 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 really add value. Now we we may take a pad lot that's on average 400 bucks a month. That's how that's what we're charging the people to to have their own unit there. And we may take it to up 10% year one and then 5% for the next five years or 10 years. Okay. So it's not, yeah. if I take your rent from 400 to 440, it's not going to kill you as much as if I, um, and it's certainly not 5%. It only goes up 20 bucks a year uh, or a month. But if I do it in an apartment and I jacked your rent up 10% and you're already paying a thousand dollars a month, you right. may move. Right. Um, so, um, in manufactured home parks, most people will accept that initially because you're doing, you're adding value, you're doing something to improve their environment and then you sure. scale it back. Mm -hmm. But, um, if it's leveraged at 75, if LTVs uh, and leveraged park at 75% leverage and I raise your rent 25% over, let's say I do it 10, five, five, five over five, over four years, mm -hmm. I probably created uh, twice as much income on the property or value to the property. Um, wow. by doing mm -hmm. those small moves and so we're so everybody pretty much wins if it's done right now you hear some abuses out there that's not the right way to go we want to work with operators who are adding the right value caring about the community there and doing it in a responsible way and, and then the, and the investors can profit from that right right and and one of the beauties of all this uh, all these three sectors in general I, uh, as you touched upon david is that there is no massive developments going on. There are not a lot of, uh, you know, assets like apartments, for example, they're not building a whole lot. Yeah. Like the only yeah. way new construction that's being built and the only way they can justify these projects is do a class A construction, have rents like, you know, 1,700 yeah. to 2,000, right. some ridiculous amounts. And these class B and class C, as we call it, are like, you know, vintage 1980s or sometimes some uh, operators I know invest uh, in like 60s buildings and stuff. But these are proven buildings and, you know, we are buying them. And as I mean, as sound as these investments are, they're really insulated from the market as well. 
So anyways, that's a great point. That's a great point. I mean, it's a great point. If you look at this is interesting. So if I'm a construction builder, do, can I build class B, which is kind of where we play? People are starting to look at that, which is basically I'm building an apartment that's lower grade, right? I'm not right. putting in fancy yeah. stuff. I'm doing it pretty mm -hmm. cheap. Uh, I'm going to have lower rents. But the vast majority of, of, of new construction coming on is class A, shiny stuff, Absolutely. top grade. And what it, the problem is they get hit in a recession. Occupancy oh, yeah. goes, those, we saw that in Houston in 2014. Occupancy goes from 95 to 85. So those are high risk investments later in the cycle. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, and, and class B, they're not building anymore. The only thing, reason someone comes to class B is not many people are building at that scale. Most of the time they say, I want to build A because I make the most profits on A. If I'm going to build something, I want to make profits. And so that's why okay. most mm -hmm. of the new construction is not priced for the typical consumer that wants to have an affordable place to live until they can afford a home if they want to someday. Right? Oh, absolutely. And yeah. one of the, another interesting facts that I was looking at is the uh, just last quarter, uh, 2018, uh, commercial mortgage bankers report came out. And in that report, uh, you know, it was kind of defining, okay, you know, how much was the delinquency rate across multifamily and all these sectors. And it's really, uh, I mean, uh, eye-opening to see that the delinquency rate on these loans are like 0 0.02, 0 0.04, yeah. 0 0.7. I mean, whether it's bank loans, it's life insurance, or, right. you know, some other Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it really, uh, you know, kind of gives that 10,000 foot view that, okay, you know, let's say, for example, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae are making billions and billions of dollars of these investments. Mm -hmm. And you wonder that, uh, hey, I mean, such loans, like, how are they performing? What's kind of delinquency? Are there yeah. any issues? But when you see this, you kind of get to know that, hey, just no delinquency across this sector. So, David, uh, thank you for all those kind words. Um, just wanted to follow up and ask you that, you know, in Europe, I mean, you've seen a lot. I think uh, you've seen uh, so many investors and operators. Um, what do you think separates the successful investors uh, and for people who, you know, maybe like just leave the field or fail in general? Like mm -hmm. what attributes do you think uh, are sort of the hallmarks of success uh, for successful investors? Well, I, I think you know, just looking from an investor standpoint, if we can focus on that, um, what I think is the best thing to do is educate yourself, you know, and uh, uh, you don't have to go, you know, get a long, a big career or a master's in anything. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, folks out there that like to be, like to educate. Uh, we, we like to educate. I think it's the best mm -hmm. part of a relationship. Uh, uh, I, I always tell people I talk to, you know, this isn't a sales and marketing kind of angle. You know, this is all about, uh, this is a serious money. It's, uh, it's, we, we take it very seriously. Um, we want to educate you on the market, the deal, the team, why we think it might be good. And, and we do that in a way where we, you know, we, we, we all have, uh, you know, newsletters and things and you know, soft approaches and and what basically do is people like something they come to us say hey i like that you know particular deal um and we slow the process down with them really we just like okay you know let's let's, let's lock it through let's understand mm -hmm. uh that you, especially new investors like hey I, I met a new investor they're on my distribution list and you know i want to make sure that they're well educated I put frequently asked questions together on my website, just do different things to make sure why I like apartments. I got a lot of, I started blogging uh, when I started this business. It's been a very effective way to get my thoughts out there and to help people educate. So I think if you're, whether you're dealing with me or somebody as a car yourself or anybody, I think we always want to encourage investments to check their website out. 
Sure. Um, find out what's available. And you, I think you really want to be working with someone who's really trying to teach you, educate you on the, the area. Mm-hmm. We always will have investments to look at, but we always want you to make sure it's the right fit for you, educated to get into these things in the first place. You know how they work, uh, what the time frame is, how you can get your money out. Um, just get a really good comfort because we can execute you and get you in the deal fine. <laughs> and we'll monitor those deals with you. We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're investing with you. I mean, we do. Right. Uh, there's a lot of questions as an investor I would mm-hmm. I put together from your from the investor standpoint to say, Dave, I, I'm kind of new to this. Tell me what I should should know, you know, enough to be dangerous. Um, and so we've created a lot of that in, that content for you, so you can. Right. So I just encourage people to read, get comfortable, um, and before you invest in something, and that way you feel like you made a, a good um, judgment, a good decision. Um, so just educating you in a space. Um, it's an area also where you know, if we're talking about operators and who I'm working with. You know, I have a whole, I have a whole uh, special report, you know, the 10 insiders, 10 tips on, know. you know, how to vet a sponsor. And, um, you know, those kind of things are important. So you start looking around, hey, I can tell you right now, it's just basic stuff. Uh, but the internet exposes a lot of bad apples out there sure. pretty quickly, right? Because uh, we have that medium to get it out quick. And, and so you'll see the bad apples uh, weeded out pretty quick. But, um, you know, most of these investors, I, uh, well, all the operators I work with are very legitimate, very experienced and very professional. And we want to make sure you're comfortable knowing that not only about the investment, what your experience is going to be uh, during an investment, how we're going to interact with you, communication, responsiveness, customer experience, good old healthy mm-hmm. customer experience. Absolutely. A lot of people forget like, uh, hey, I just raised the capital. I got you in the deal. Okay, great. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> no, people <laughs> no. want updates. They want to know monthly or quarterly. What, what, like, how are we doing? It's not big, extensive stuff, but it's like four or five bullet points. Are we getting the rent that, you, that we expected? Are we, how's the occupancy? Let me show you some pictures of the renovation. So sure. you're sitting in Virginia. The deals in Dallas, you, can, you feel like you're part of this partnership. It's a partnership with you. I'm partnering with you. Right. I'm just not selling you on something and away you go. Good luck with that. I'm, I'm invested with you. Um, our goal, and I think a really good syndicate's role is developing long-term relationships with our investor base. Right. 85% of my investors are return investors or referrals for right. those investors, right? Absolutely. Right? Because, you know, you're showing them good deals. They're conservatively underwritten. They're having success with that. They want to do more or they want to tell their friends. And right. that's the beauty of the business. It's not a business where we're out there pushing hard on this stuff. Right. You know, provide good quality deals, educate people, and they'll come and, and tell their friends. And then you take care of them once you have them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a wonderful business that way. That, that's why if, if you see in my back, it says premium cash flow, learn, grow, serve. Perfect. And that, that's, yeah. that's, that's, I mean, that's, that's pretty perfect. much is what, uh, you know, I, like I was able to come up with that. I mean, yeah. in my years of business, I, I pretty much found that um, real estate and your personality development are extremely correlated that yeah. you, know, you learned, you serve with integrity and you know, whoever people are around you, it's gotta be a win-win relationship. It's just, yeah, there's just no other way. And you said the right, the magic words relationship. We're trying to right. build long-term relations with investors and um, and educate them in a space that they. What, what the fun part for me is that most people, you know, if everyone's bought a car, probably most people have bought a house, and so right. we're not in that area because you already have preconceived notions, uh, biased one way or other about that experience. Sure. We're coming at you. Most of the investors, I at least the new ones that are coming into our our uh, our area, those folks have never even thought they could invest in an apartment or a manufactured home park. So what is that all about? So the beauty that I have, the excitement I get is sharing these really cool opportunities. And I have one data point. Well, there's two data points I want to leave you with that I think are pretty cool. 
you mentioned one early on in 2009 we had the market crash right less than a half percent of apartment owners were behind on their mortgage right one out of uh, four and a half percent of single-family homeowners so almost 10 times riskier yeah. to own a house or a rental property with one income tied to that versus a two or three hundred unit apartment with lots of incomes tied to that right Literally. we're not going to get that hit so so this is already a lower risk okay um, the second thing is the reason why I personally am in this space and you're in personally in this space, if you look at these three niches, apartments, self stores, and manufactured home parks, if you go look at the data for 25 years, over 25 years, they outperformed the stock market by seven to 10%. That's huge, right? With a lot far less volatility along the way, which is like the beauty of it too. You know, there's not this, there's not this neon light price of my apartment every time I drive by like a gasoline price I can always tell I'm a little bit more nervous when it's going up and feeling really good when it's going down it's stock prices every day you're driving in your car hey the Dow Jones was up and the Nasdaq was down and right. I don't need that's just noise to me right? right but in an apartment it's a long term it's more of a longer term patient investment but you actually understand how it works and that it's going to throw cash out and it's going to help me and it gets through downturns so these these niches they, in the downturns, they, they perform very well. And I think that's why over 25 years, they outperform. They don't go, they don't go down 50%. You know, typically, they don't go down 50% in a given year, right? They may go down, mm -hmm. but they're not going down so drastically that you're going to make an emotional decision. And then the other thing I love about people, about illiquidity of it. Yes, it's illiquid, but it does throw out cash flow most of the time, right? Good, right. good investment. Um, but it's illiquid, so you're, you, you, it would be hard for you to unlock that your emotional in the stock market. I, I go in there and my computer, I sell it. Probably at the worst time, right? It's down 50%. I'm selling, I'm getting out. And then three months later, it's up and you're like, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. The beauty of real estate for me, being an investor who's invested, in, I've had stock clubs, I've invested in options, is that it's a patient investment and it's a solid investment. And over time, it rewards you and you can't react emotionally to it, typically. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I appreciate those important points, David. One thing I always appreciate you for is that I think the insight and just the simple candor that you bring and simple common sense you throw into this. I think you've been an executive president and raised, uh, you know, uh, such a uh, big uh, money for your other businesses in your corporate world. You bring in that experience, which I, I think is very uncommon that uh, you just bring bring in those uh, uh, insights that I find are always valuable. I mean, you know, I have heard you on other podcasts as well. And it always, you know, amazes me that, oh my God, I mean, the person can look from A to B to like, uh, you know, so far down the line. And that's, that's the vision you bring in is that, you know, just the points that you said right now about multifamily self-storage and uh, mobile home parks, like how these investments are insulated, less volatility and guaranteed returns. I, I, I you know, I cannot overstate how important it is and how serious it is that, uh, invest, uh, you know, all the audience should take note of this and go research the data. I mean, I always say that, hey, listen to us, but do your homework and read about the important stats in this. Um, anyways, I appreciate your time, David. Uh, yeah. How can people uh, get hold of you if they have to, uh, you know, learn more about it, how they can get in touch with you? Yeah, that's great. So we have a website, thompsoninvesting.com. It's kind of a long one, thompsoninvesting.com. But um, I have a lot of the blog articles and, and some leadership things that you can read, some podcasts and stuff uh, that you mentioned, Sakar. So I would always encourage you to start there. And then uh, David at thompsoninvesting.com is uh, how you can get a hold of me. So uh, 
uh, again, David at thompsoninvesting.com. And, uh, you know, we have a, an introduction and just kind of a walkthrough of what's going on with, uh, with you and understand, you know, what you're trying to accomplish. And uh, we'll go from there. Absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate your time, David. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.